0: Maybe one of the most influential, if not the, probably in the top three uh, individuals who has ever touched my life was uh, Dr. Robinson, who was, when I first met him, was the president at Denver. And then I later studied under him at Gordon and known him for years. He's since passed away. But one time in our conversation, he told me a story about an ordination that he attended. Now, for those of you who have never attended one of these things, they don't really do them a whole lot anymore. Ordination used to be one of those things where you would bring together some emerging pastor and a group of other pastors would just grill this individual theologically somewhat in the area of philosophy of ministry, where they would get this official ordination. It usually lasts about two hours. They ask all kinds of things like what is your millennial position, what is all of your eschatological stuff and how do people get saved and fun stuff like that one time his had was telling me this story he was down in medford this is where he started his ministry at first baptist in medford there was a pastor who was almost all done it was two hours into the thing and the pastor raises his hand he goes young man i have two questions i want to ask you and the first one was do you love people Hadn't when he was reflecting on it, he said, "You know, I remember sitting there, and professors always told me all my life, and you've heard it before. There's no dumb questions." Hadn't said this one, borderlined on it. He said, "You know, do you love people? What do you expect the guy to respond to that? No, I don't love people. I'm getting into the ministry for the money. <laughs> it's like, well, what are you going to say to that? Do I love people?" Well, somehow he came out with an answer that sufficed, and then the pastor asked a second question. How do you know if he love people? Haddon, when he was telling me, it was probably 30 years after that event, he said, you know, when I first heard those two questions, I thought those are two of the dumbest questions I've ever heard. He said 30 years later, he says, I think it was those two questions that were the only good ones that were asked that day. Do you love people? How do you know it? Paul tended to agree with that. When Paul was writing to the Corinthian church and they were having some schismic issues in their church. And Paul wrote to them and he said in chapter 13. It really doesn't matter how gifted you are, how rich you are, how giving you are. If you don't love people, your life is worthless. That was his summary. John is approaching it really in the same way. But John's approach is the second question he'll presume the first one do you love people and John comes at it and he says I'm going to presume that you're going to tell me you love people the question that John wants to know is how do you know because if we use the definition of the 60s everybody loved people especially if you're on LSD then you really loved people it's like everyone in the 60s was loving people man it was a great time to be alive but how do you know Because if you define love as an emotion, love as something of kind of this emotional feeling or something of this erotic feeling. And we know in the scriptures there's different kinds of love. There's phileo and and there's eros. But John's asking the question is, is at the end of the day, how do you know if you love people? And I think John would agree that that pastor on that day maybe asked the two most important questions that we need to ask today. And part of the reason is because the church has always faced schisms. It has. In fact, he addresses it here in verses 11 through 15. He says, this is the message you heard from the very beginning, that you should love one another. Why? Well, because there's some people out there that are like Cain. Who's Cain? He killed his brother. And it seems like we're kind of bent towards hatred. It's like we almost like it. John's writing earlier in chapter two, he's already dealt with this issue. And he says, There are a group of people out there that said, Oh, I love God. It's people I can't stand. And he's like, Oh, I love God, but people in the church, a bunch of hypocrites. And John's point, and I like it, is it is an inconceivable, incongruous position to hold to say, I love God and I really don't like these people. And John is just saying, You're a liar. Not to beat around the bush. You're a liar. It's incongruent to say that I love God and hate people. It is, from John's perspective. So he comes back to this issue and he wants to address a really important question, and that is if you hate your brother, you live in darkness. But the reality is, we're called to love, but there's this problem there's a lack of love and unity. It's been a problem all around the world. If you go to South Africa, apartheid, the word's are not used as much as it used to be. It's still there when you go to church on a Sunday morning. If you go to India, there's multiple caste systems, and after 4,000 years, they haven't figured out how, even in the Christian circle, to bridge that gap. If you look at the history of our church and the history of theology or the history of the church in general you're going to see it it seems like we like schisms Uh, the first one coming out of the shoots after Christ was alive was the Gnostics that was that issue where they were separating the spirit and the flesh the flesh is evil and the spirit is good doesn't matter what you do in the flesh you can sin like the devil because that's in the flesh and that's already evil so we can just write that one off that was a nice thing to do and then there was the uh, the Nestorian and then there was the arian and all of these issues came was one favored the divinity of christ the other favored the you know nature of christ being flesh and so they were arguing over those things they would church historians would tell you that the church kind of stayed unified for about a thousand years it's a long time but in 1054 the church split it was a schism And what happened is is the Western Church, what we would call today the Catholic Church, split off from what we today call the Eastern Church or the Orthodox, the Anglican Church. And and they split and they didn't like each other. They chose separate Easter's. They chose a lot of different things. But it, it was for the first time that the church really had two major rivers. And then on the Western side, those of us who are from that side, most of us in this room, from the Catholic side, then in... The 1500s came along another schism or another split. We don't use that term. We use the Protestant Reformation. Why? Because we liked it. I mean, none of us would want to say, I love a schism. We like the Reformation. Why? Because we believe in the Sola Scripture and Sola, uh, you know, Christ alone, Scripture alone, the authority of Christ alone and the Scripture and grace alone and faith alone. We love those. The reality is, it was a schism. I was telling somebody not too long ago in a discussion, he said, one of the sad parts of my heart is that I've pastored the church 38 some years, and the entirety of that, the church has fought over worship. It's not been a year that I have pastored that there's been at peace and rest in the evangelical, broader Christian community about worship. We've been fighting over it. The only thing that kind of medicates my heart is when I began to study this issue, I found out we've been fighting over it for 500 years. It's really sad. In fact, during the very Reformation that we kind of like, there was a great Reformation and a great movement of God in the area of worship. It was for the first time that the church moved out of the Psalter, that is, singing the Psalms. But if you did that, like Martin Luther, you were a heretic. And they wrote him off and they would stand at the back of his church services and protest him because he was singing songs that came from somewhere other than the Bible. Like How Great Thou Art, or or A Mighty Fortress, and those kinds of songs that we sing today and say, oh, they're the sacred songs. Well, there was a day those were the heretical songs. Isaac Watts, I love this story. Isaac came into his dad's office. He was a pastor one day, and he came into his dad's office and said, Dad, the, the music in our church is boring. And his father said to Isaac, well, then write new music. And Isaac went home and he wrote his first hymn. And for the next five years, Isaac Watts wrote a new hymn every weekend. Did they love it? Oh, no. They would stand at the back of his church service. Their arms crossed. He wrote a song about it, not he, but it was a song. I can't remember. You can look it up on uh, Google and text me, and then I'll know it in about 30 seconds. Um, But uh, we're marching to Zion. Remember that? We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. Look at the second verse. Let those who refuse to sing who never knew their God. It's been sad. It's almost as if the church likes fights. It's almost as if they thrive on him. John understood that. And that's why he said, my friends, if you're a follower of Christ, I want you to love like Christ. Now, mind you, that's a big and a very, very significant statement because they were debating over the nature of Christ and if there's anything that gives us powers like I'm fighting for the truth of Christ and John would say that's great but it doesn't give you permission to hate people nothing does And so in answer to the pastor's second question, John would agree. I think it's a critical question to ask. And it's one I want to ask with you this morning. Not do you love people? Most of us would say, well, yes. And maybe the honest ones would say, I love some people. But John's question is this, how do you know? How do you know that you love people? And that's why he wants to answer it. In verse 16, he says, this is how we know what love is. This is how we know whether or not you're really loving people. And he starts off with a hard one. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we should do the same for our brothers. What John tells us is that love has nothing to do with a feeling. It has nothing to do with emotion. It has nothing to do with words. It has everything to do with actions. And that is, are you willing to sacrifice for people? Are you willing to do something where you lay down your life, where you suspend your desires, where you obligate yourself, where you allow somebody else to demand something of you or to ask something of you? Because if I tell you I love you, what I'm giving you is permission. If indeed John says that to love somebody is to lay down your life for them, then what I'm saying is if I love you, then I'm saying to you, you have the freedom to request something of me, to ask me to act, to love you, to tangibly serve you. Now, if you walk out here and there's somebody out there with a sign that says, you know, need help, need money, whatever the case may be, and you throw them a couple of dollars, you may in the moment feel better, but you're not loving them. Not at all. Because two bucks, I'm sorry, there's not a person in this room that $2 is sacrifice. You may placate your emotions, but you aren't sacrificing anything. You're giving up two bucks. To be quite honest with you, it's not going to touch your life. There's not one decision that you're going to alter because you gave up those two dollars. Now, if you go out to this person and you say to them, hey, you done living on the street? You finished? Because if you are, I will take you home today. I have a spare room. I'm going to put you in it. I'm going to care for you. We're going to get you some new clothes. I'm going to teach you how to live in this society. It's not easy. But I'm going to love you and I'm going to care for you. And we're going to get you a job. And I'm going to help you to design a budget. And we're going to save up some money. we're going to get you into an apartment. Because those days on the street, they're done. You're coming with me. And if they say yes to that, my friend, now you're loving somebody because that would be a sacrifice it would alter your life if you did it some of you would have to cancel some vacations if you did it some of you are going to have some things in your home that gets broken but John wants you to understand when you ask the question how do I know if I'm loving anyone the first thing he starts off with is are you willing to sacrifice for people And secondly, are you willing to make it personal? He goes on and he says, we ought to lay down our lives just as Christ did for what? Our brothers. And See, love is not a word. It's not an expression of I love you. It's looking into the eyes of a person and say, I love you. It's making it personal. It's serving someone. It's helping someone's life get better. And he says later, if you find a brother in your midst and that person is without and you have it. I mean, what kind of individual are you that you can walk by a brother, a person you know, that's in need. You having everything you need and walk by and not be moved by that person at all. You don't know God. But love is personal. It means that it's going to have a name attached to it. It means that it's going to demand my energy. It means that it's going to demand my talent and my life and my sacrifice. It means there's going to be somebody that I serve. I'm not going to sacrifice for inanimate objects. I'm not going to sacrifice for an ideal. There's all kinds of people nowadays that are fasting for something. They're protesting something. That's not love. Love is taking food that you have and giving it to a person who doesn't have it. Love is taking some resources that you have and helping another person. Love is finding a widow in our church and saying, I'm your guy. If you have a need that's broken in your house, you call me. Here's my phone number. There's never a time you can't call me. Water breaks in the middle of the night, I'm your first call. That's loving. Why? Because it's being willing to give up sleep. That's sacrifice. But it's willing to be personal. I know your name and I want to know your needs. When God says He loved the world, He didn't send Christ indiscriminately to no one, He sent Christ to people. And God knows everyone. In fact, He says He knows the hairs on your head. He loved you personally. I've heard of people in our church, not a lot. But after 38 years, you hear this. Periodically, they'll come to me and say, Pastor, um, we just don't connect here. We don't, we don't connect to the people. We, we, we haven't found friends here. And so we're going to go to another church. And when I first heard that 38 plus years ago, man, I honestly, I got really defensive. I was kind of like... Man, what's wrong with our church? And I'd get kind of hard on us and I'd be mad. And it's like, why aren't people loving? And why do we have cliques in the church? And I'd I'd get kind of mad at small groups that would meet and never grow and never multiply. And, and instead of seeing that as people who are gathering and gotten to know each other and love each other, I'd see it and I'd be mad at it. Because there's somebody over here that's leaving our church because nobody loved them. I, I was in that for a long time, honestly, too, way too long. And then it, it dawned on me. It's kind of like an awakening. When I see somebody who's loving, sacrificial, personal, I've noticed something. They've never come to me and said, Pastor, I'm disconnected from the church. When a person is willing to put themselves out, when a person is willing to invest in other people, when a person is willing to sacrifice their time and their energy and their resources and their talents, when they're willing to sacrifice all of those things, I've noticed this, they are never disconnected from people. In fact, most of them would say, I probably have too many friends. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you feel disconnected, but I am going to challenge you. I have never met a person who says, I am sent here by God to love these people. I am sent here by God to sacrifice on behalf of this body, on behalf of this community of faith. I am sent here by God to give of myself and to personally meet needs and to put the needs of other people ahead of myself. I have never met a person who makes that goal over time feel disconnected. In fact, what I've noticed is they have people flood to them. They have people who love to be with them. Maybe that's John's point. When you love like Christ, people love to be with you. Third, John tells us that love is indiscriminate. And what I mean by this is it doesn't have boundaries put on it. If you look over at chapter 4, verse 10... He makes this statement, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And by the way, he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, what does that tell you? It means this, God didn't wait till you got pretty to love you. He didn't wait till you got your act together. He didn't wait till you quit drinking. He didn't wait till you got off weed. He didn't wait. He didn't say, you know what, you get off weed or I'm not going to die for you. He didn't say that. He didn't say anything. In fact, he said, I love you. While we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8, God, what? Sent his son to die for us. Now, it's easy to love people like us. It just is. It's easy to love people who think like me and uh, who agree with me and and who kind of spend their money the way I do and, you know, vacation the way I do. I don't vacation. That's a dumb statement. Um, It's just easy to to be close to people that are in a value alignment with us. But John's problem, and it's all of our problem, is, is he doesn't put that boundary on it. In fact, he tells us who God loves. And that's our model. This is how we know what love is. Jesus died for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for others. It should be sacrificial. It should be personal. And it should be indiscriminate. Meaning that we're called to love people who are like us. We're called to love people who are unlike us. And we're even called to love people who dislike us. That gets really hard. It gets really hard to love somebody maybe that is caring for your parent and they're doing a really horrible job and you're mad at them. It's really hard to love a person that, that snaps at you and shames you and says things to you that are hurtful and they have no intention of loving you. They just frankly are mad at you and they don't care how badly they hurt you. And then God has the nerve to say, yeah, go love them. Yes. If love is an emotion, if love is a feeling, I am never going to make it. But if love is sacrificial and it is personal and it is indiscriminate, then John tells me, Mark, you can love like Christ. You can love people with no boundaries. You can love people who even dislike you. He goes on and he says one that I find just terribly helpful. And that is, love is also practical. Verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in this person? Well, it's not. It's a rhetorical question. It's not. To flip it. If you love the way Christ is, you're always willing and looking for the ability to meet What? Personal needs, practical needs. Jesus was intensely practical. He went to a wedding, they didn't have enough wine. He said, I got it covered. I think that's pretty cool. He went over to Peter's family, he said, you Got a family member that's ill? I'll heal it. He did really practical things. Now, None of us can go to a wedding. If you, you, you can do this, call me. But none of us can go to a wedding and say, "Yeah, hey, you give me some of your well water. Yeah, I'm going to make you some, you know, whatever. Wine, beer. I'll do it without hops. That's supernatural <laughs> and practical <laughs> and economical. <laughs> but the fact is, is that's what." God calls us to. There was a book that uh, James Bryan wrote a number of years ago, James Bryan Smith. It's a good book. I recommend it to you. It's called The Good and Beautiful Community. And in it, he helps us explore this area of what does it look like to practically love people? One of them, he says, is how well do you listen? How well do you listen to your spouse? This one gets me because I have at times fallen under the illusion that I can multitask. And so Carrie will be talking and I I will send a text. And then she pauses and that pause is speak to me, Mark, you're not listening to me. Oh, it's okay, honey. I, I hear what you're saying. And the reality is no one can multitask. You cannot listen to your spouse and send a text at the same time. Can't do it. And there are times that I've been called up short by my wife because I tell her that this text is more important than her. And in that moment, I'm not loving her at all. I'm telling her she is second to anyone else that I think I want to get this text sent to. I just need to get this out. If I'm going to practically love her, it means I put the phone down. It means that I don't pick it up. It means that my eyes are focused and my ears are open, if I love her, because love is practical. Periodically, uh, Carrie will say something like, "Hey, let's let Annie choose a movie tonight." And um, whenever she makes that suggestion, I know uh, it's going to be a long night. Um, There's really only about three movies that Annie might choose that I like. And the reality is she falls in a genre that I really don't appreciate. um, Animation and musicals. (laughs) You put those two together and I just want to hit myself. I, I don't enjoy them. But I love her. So if I'm going to love her, and you may myself, this is so trite and small, you try watching a musical. <laughs> now some of you are like, oh please, well, great, to God be the glory, there's going to be a place in heaven for you. I just probably won't visit you. <laughs> we can meet at a coffee shop somewhere else some of those times and this is maybe where it gets to the real practical it's like wait a minute we can make love so lofty and we're going to save the world and we're going to end homelessness why don't you try choosing to let somebody else choose the movie and delight in being with them Why don't you try going to the office and making the coffee instead of expecting somebody else to make it? Why don't you go into the coffee or the break room at the office and clean up after yourself? I'm not talking about anybody. (laughs) But seriously, do you always expect somebody else to pick up after you? Do you always expect your spouse to be the one who cleans the house? Is that above you? Or do you love them? Have you ever thought of going to the worship leader and telling them, you know what, I really don't care what songs you sing. I don't. I just want you to know when I come, we can sing Yankee Doodle Dandy and I'm going to worship God. I really don't care. Never feel pressure to have to please me. What if we gave each other permission I'm going to love you. And what that means is I'm going to obligate myself to you with no demands from you. I'm going to love you. What a place the body of Christ would be. Love is practical. It's willing to say to another person, I will meet your needs with no expectation that you have to meet mine. It may not change the world, but I guarantee it'll change you. John finishes in kind of a unique way. In fact, when I first read it a number of years ago, I was kind of like, John, why don't you stay on the topic? I know you're inspired by the Holy Spirit and all of that stuff, but stay on the topic. It's a good topic. Love like Christ. I like that topic. It's hard. It's hard to do, but it's it's clear. And he starts and he goes here at the end in verse 21. He says, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And I didn't get that. Me neither. <laughs> your phone ever just talked to you? She just told me you're unclear in your message. <laughs> Somebody want an apple watch? It's all yours. Piece of junk. Let's get back to the sermon. We have confidence before God and receive from him anything that we ask. just like, John, wait a minute. We're talking about love. Now you're going to prayer and confidence? Why, Why? But keep reading. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Oh, you really haven't left the subject, have you? What's his point? His point is, if you learn to love like Christ, then you're going to also pray like Christ. There were days that Christ was stretched and he came to his father. Father, I need more wisdom. And the father said, I'll give it to you. There were days where he said, father, this burden is too hard for me. I need a grace and a power today for me to go to the cross. And the father said, I'll give it to you. You see, I think one of the things whispers in your ear the enemy, and he says, if you really love people this way, if you sacrifice for people, and it's personal, and it's indiscriminate, and it has no boundaries on it, people are going to take advantage of you. You know, after all, you got to look out for yourself. And there's this warning and this fear. It's like, man, if I live this way, whoa, these people are going to, they're going to just steal me blind. That's why John finishes this way. My friend, if you're obedient to Christ, anything you ask, the Father will give it to you. Father, the demands on my life are extensive. I need more bandwidth. I'll give it to you. I need more resources, God, to meet some of the needs that you've laid upon my heart and I want to meet them. I will give that to you. That's what He says. We have confidence before God and we receive from him anything that we ask. Why? Because we are obeying his command. Go love people. You see, when you love like Jesus, then you pray like Jesus. And the father will give you the resources you need to meet the demands on your life. But you have to sign up. Lord, I want to love like Christ. The year's 2008. Remember that year. It was the year that President Obama was elected. And Philip Yancey, one of my favorite authors, was in India. And when he was in India, he was speaking to a number of people. And one of the scholars came up to him and said, and I quote, You Americans are amazing people. You're celebrating the election of a black man after only 250 years of slavery. We're still waiting for liberation after 4,000 years of living under the same caste system. If you follow the history in India, you'll note that the early missionaries when they came into India targeted the Brahmins. They're one of the highest caste. And their theory was this that if they reach the Brahmins, it will trickle down to the other castes and it will transform the country. It never has. And so there's a work that God is doing in India. It's called All for India. But it's not starting with the Brahmins. It's going to the 50 to maybe even 60% of those in the caste systems that can't go into the temples. That aren't allowed to worship. And they're ostracized because they're of the wrong cultural caste. And Yancey came back and he reflected... And he thought to himself in 2008 and then again in 2020 where uh, conservatives, evangelicals were saying, oh man, we're losing the White House, we're losing power and the liberals are winning. And Yancey said, maybe we need to look at this differently. Maybe we're thinking the way the old missionaries used to think that we have to be in the top and let our power trickle down. When the reality is... Nobody today is going to stop you from loving people. And you're called to love people who are like you, who are unlike you, even people who dislike you. And if that's the case, then it really doesn't matter who's in power. What matters is that if you love like Jesus, then you'll pray like Jesus. And the Father says, I'll give you what you need. You'll never be lacking. And when you do that, you're going to have more friends than you can imagine. Because people love to be loved. Let's pray.